Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Last week, the 2020 Sustainable Energy in America Factbook was released. To talk about some of the key findings, I talk with Lisa Jacobson, President of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, and Ethan Zindler, Head of Americas at Bloomberg NEF. The last decade saw tremendous energy transformation in the United States, and Lisa and Ethan give us some of the key trends that they saw develop, especially those around productivity and prices, renewable energy, and increased energy efficiency. Well, welcome, Lisa and Ethan. Thanks for joining Energy 360. And congratulations, the 2020 Sustainable Energy uh, in America Factbook has just been released. It's a big resource for a lot of us in the energy sector. And while I think a lot of people are familiar with it, I want to take a moment to talk about how it came about, because you said it's been out for about eight years now, um, and then kind of what sets it apart from other outlooks. So Lisa, why don't we start with you? Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be on the podcast and especially to be here with Ethan Zindler. And Ethan was around at the early conversations when the Factbook you know, it was just a, a concept. The Business Council for Sustainable Energy is a trade association. We're based here in Washington, D.C., and we work on energy and environmental policies. We represent industries that are commercially available technology solutions, in particular for greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Mm -hmm. So we were about to have our 25th anniversary, and we had invited Ethan and his colleagues to come and meet with our board. And in that conversation, we realized that things were changing very fast in the sectors that, that we work with, which are predominantly energy efficiency, natural gas, and renewable energy. And while we could see things were changing, we really didn't have a resource that both looked at a lot of our industries in depth, but then knit it all together and helped tell a story. And the BCSE, we are a business organization, and, and we believe policy needs to be based on facts and data. So we talked with Ethan and his colleagues about an opportunity to create something which is now the Sustainable Energy in America Factbook. And it is a compilation of what we think are maybe the 100-plus most pertinent energy facts. Uh, it's focused on the United States. And it really does tell a story of very sweeping changes in the U.S. energy sector, probably changes we couldn't have anticipated when we started the project. So it's been a real value to our work in working to promote policies. And it also has helped our industries better understand not only the changes in their sectors, but also how integrated we all are in the energy marketplace today. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ethan, why don't you jump in a little bit, because that's a great opportunity eight years ago to kind of establish a new fact book, a new resource for people. So how did you guys go about that? Yeah, so, I mean, the fact book is really just a compendium of, you know, where the U.S. energy sector stands today. And, uh, and, and it has a fairly decent amount of original research from Bloomberg NEF, and we're a division of Bloomberg that does energy market research. Um, but it also has a lot of data pulled from basically public sources um, and essentially repurposed into maybe slightly prettier slides that are hopefully easy for people to consume. And and the, really the main goal, as Lisa says, is just to kind of level set and to provide a lot of basic facts about where the industry is. We, we hope it can be easily consumed by um, – by policymakers here in Washington who maybe are not energy experts, um, by the media um, and by the by the public. The the goal is to try and sort of tell a big, complicated story uh, in relatively straightforward language. 
Um, and so this is the eighth year, so it's also a chance, and it's 2020, so it's a new decade, a chance to think about what has changed over the last 10 years. Um, and there's been a lot of changes, so I wanted to dig in a little bit on what are the trends that you have really seen. So 10 years ago, we were talking a lot about the beginning of the shale gas revolution, but we weren't talking anything about, say, EVs or battery storage. So can you guys kind of jump in on what you've seen as some of the exciting trends? Well, I can start maybe at a uh, in a non-sectoral way, and then mm -hmm. Ethan can chime in on some of the very sector-specific changes we've seen. I, you know, I think um, the energy productivity of the economy, even though those trends have been going on beyond just this past decade, it really kicked into gear with a combination of factors. Um, obviously, you know, policies that were put in place prior to the beginning of the 2010s, like uh, the Recovery Act. Um, state energy efficiency resource standards, you know, the whole intersection with information technology in the energy sector, which has enabled, you know, energy efficiency to go from just, you know, product-based approaches to really system approaches. All of that uh, really moved fast in the 2010s, and we've seen the energy productivity of the U.S. economy continue to increase. So I think that's very significant. Second, I would say, you know, because, again, of information technology and new innovations in the marketplace, the consumer, and the consumer, broadly speaking, it could be at an individual or household level, or it could be, you know, a small business or a large corporation. They've really been able to transform segments of the energy economy. I mean, there's so, so many things have happened in the last 10 years. It's <laughs> yes, sort of hard to even know where to begin. I mean, it's um, it's been an incredible decade, though, in, in, in multiple ways. And we, and Lisa kind of walked these, talked you through these things. But I mean, we, we make the point in the report that how uh, energy gets um, generated and, and either comes out of the ground or gets, uh, or electrons get produced, that that's, been, that's changed a lot in the last 10 years. How that energy then gets delivered to consumers over um, pipelines or over transmission lines or not at all um, if they if they generate it locally, that's all changed. Um, and then how consumers interact with energy has all changed as well because they have a lot more choices today thanks to new technologies. Um, they can even monitor their energy if they want to really nerd out and like understand how much you know, power is coming from their photovoltaic system or um, how much juice their you know, electric vehicle is using every month or whatever it is. So there's a whole lot of additional uh, information technology that's come along with all this energy technology in the last 10 years that has fundamentally transformed things. And um, you know, in generally speaking, and it's one point I do want to make sure we make before we go on too far is, there has been a, a broad trend towards decarbonization. Right. This clearly is happening. Uh, move away from coal and towards renewables and natural gas. That's well underway. There's been the trend that Lisa mentioned towards improved energy efficiency, which also has benefited in terms of CO2 emissions. Um, but one thing that often gets lost in that conversation is also mentioning the fact that actually the price of energy has not gone up as we have gotten um, our energy sector cleaner. And I always want to in the Washington context, kind of, I, I say this a million times. I'm sure it's bored Lisa to death, but over and over again, I want to make the point that clean energy does not have to be, you know, expensive energy. In fact, it's generally cheaper. So, within the context of thinking long term about how do we deal with climate emissions going forward, you know, there has to be a paradigm shift, and the conversation should start from a different place, which is we're going to save money addressing these issues. If we don't, it's going to cost us more. But it, in the Washington context, that always seems to come about it the conversation starts in a different place. And so we hope, I think one of my personal hopes for this project is that we can at least reset that conversation a little bit. 
Oh, that's important. And Lisa, I don't know how you see that sort of because you said you have about 100 members. And I'm curious, like, how do you kind of see your members? Are there the productivity gains are huge, but sort of are they also pushing on that sort of like the price issue? Oh, very much so. I mean, if you look back at a decade and unfortunately, as Ethan said, I mean, there are some parts of the energy policy uh, circle that that still hold the belief that you can't have a clean energy transformation without putting a significant energy pricing burden on households and businesses. And the data just doesn't show that. In Mm -hmm. fact, it shows the exact opposite. It shows very significant change happening much faster in many parts of the economy than many uh, analysts might have predicted 10 years ago. And when you look across the board at major metrics, you do not see energy increasing. In fact, you see it often decreasing. You know, when we look at things like uh, wind technology, you know, it's in some parts of the country, that's the lowest cost option without subsidies. And it's not just wind. I mean, you know, we can look at many technologies. When you look at what's been going on with natural gas and, you know, what we've been able to really leverage with the private sector on energy efficiency, you know, there's just so many cost effective or lower cost options out there now. So we really should have the conversation that's kind of completely refuting that. But, you know, 10 years ago, the number one question is, you know, it's just going to cost too much to make this change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can't really rely on this portfolio of efficiency renewables and natural gas. It's just not going to deliver for us. We won't have a reliable power system. Mm -hmm. And again, we've just turned that conversation upside down with data. We have a very reliable system (laughs) because of its diversity, and we can have lower and zero emissions technologies increasingly being integrated into our electricity system without harming reliability. Right. And so over the time that you've done this, uh, we've really seen uh, greenhouse gas emissions actually level off, especially in the electric power sector, right? Like, so that's from fuel switching, that's from a little bit lower consumption across the board. Um, And I think that really plays into some of the policy questions going on right now. Yeah, I mean, just to put a couple specific numbers on Mm -hmm. it, I mean, overall U.S. greenhouse gas emissions over the decade dropped by about 4%, um, which, uh, but it's worth noting that, you know, the power sector, it dropped much, much more than that. And actually, the transportation sector has really now been the the area where there's, I think, greater concern. And now uh, we started the decade with the power sector being the number one sector for CO2 emissions. We ended the decade with it number two and actually falling fast with the industrial sector creeping up on it and transportation being number one. Uh, and of course, this kind of sets up a conversation about what happens next and the, and the, the Trump administration's effort around corporate average fuel economy standards and how important those are right. for driving emissions down further. But I mean, it's kind of remarkable just how quickly things have changed. Last year, power sector CO2 emissions, I think, dropped by a little bit more than 7% in one year. Um, as we saw a lot more coal retire, we saw a lot of new gas come online and a lot of uh, renewables come online as well. There's about another 25 gigawatts uh, of of coal-fired power plants that are due to come offline in the next five years. So the trend in the power sector um, is just set to continue going forward. Natural gas prices are super cheap, and they don't look like they're going to go up anytime soon. So these phenomenon that we've seen in the power sector definitely have a certain momentum um, that's kind of unstoppable. When you think about emissions, to my mind, the bigger question and concern now is what do we do about the transportation sector? Mm-hmm. What do we do about the industrial sector? You don't have immediate answers for us on those? I'll come back to you. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you both brought up the point about the importance that policy plays. Sometimes it 
takes a little while for it to move things ahead. So it can take a couple of years. But there's been a lot of changes recently, especially at the federal level, um, with CAFE standards, with some other regulatory changes. I wondered if you could kind of dig in a little bit more about how important those are and sort of what is the pipeline of things that you see happening right now that will affect sort of the, the next decade. Well, I I think I'll talk about just a couple of areas. I mean, the federal investment in clean energy, Mm -hmm. which, thank goodness, continues to have strong bipartisan support. It manifests itself in our annual budget process, the appropriations process, where Congress, uh, you know, puts forward its priorities and the Department of Energy, and in particular in the sectors that are are making this transformation Mm -hmm. and will offer new technology to the transformation that will come are being well-funded. I mean, there are those out there that say we need to double, triple, quadruple that investment from the government side. But nonetheless, we've seen, despite budgets that have come out from the current administration that don't share that priority, that Congress has, its will has uh, been the dominant, and we've had those steady investments, and they're paying off. I mean, there's so many examples within the BCSE world. I mean, we talk about the shale revolution. I mean, that was multiple decades of public-private partnership Mm -hmm. that led to the results we have now, and these benefits to the American consumer in very low-cost energy and natural gas prices, which then also lead to low electricity prices. So a lot of benefit there. But in energy efficiency, you know, the, the standards processes, uh, the public-private partnerships like Better Buildings, you know, there's just so many initiatives that are done under the Department of Energy that influence what we see you know, in terms of results for greenhouse gas emissions reductions and deployment. Then I'd also mention tax policy. Basically, some people say that our national energy policy has been our national clean energy tax policy because there have been, you know, longstanding, though sometimes episodic, uh, investments through the tax code to encourage more deployment of renewable energy or energy efficiency or other enhancements uh, in energy infrastructure. So in the last several years, and certainly throughout the decade, We've seen that continued investment. And when you look at some of the data in the fact book, when we've had a longer runway so that businesses can invest using those tax incentives, Mm -hmm. we have had very strong, consistent growth. When it's been on and off, you see that exactly mirrored in, in what's been happening with deployment. So, you know, policy matters and policy that is consistent with the investment cycles of the private sector is what works best. And ultimately, what leverages the private sector investment? Very well said by Lisa, but I would just add that it, uh, two quick things. One, over the decade, and, and Lisa mentioned it earlier, the stimulus bill that was passed in 2009, I believe, um, I would still argue is probably the most important piece of clean energy legislation ever passed in terms of the amount of money that it put towards the sector and that it kind of created a certain momentum and a scale up. And frankly, then you know, the industry took its cue from that, and we saw scales, scale up of manufacturing and, and price declines for a lot of different things, um, including everything from LED bulbs to, you, you know, um, smart meters to batteries and wind and solar. Um, so I think that's one thing. The other thing I wanted to mention is, is, is the role of the states, which, um, which uh, you know, I think has been critically important. The states um, at the beginning of the decade were providing a lot of um, whether energy efficiency resource standards or renewable portfolio standards to try and mandate um, renewables or energy efficiency. And that's made a huge, huge difference. I do think it's interesting, even in the last year or so, um, you, know, you try and take into account and understand the Trump effect. One of the interesting and unusual effects of Trump, I would argue, is that 
He won in 2016. 2018, there was a substantial backlash in states that are that were generally kind of democratic and became more so. And then in 2019, I think it was nine states that we saw strengthen um, their state policies for renewables, in particular, I think energy efficiency, energy efficiency in some cases as well. Virginia, last year where I live, major elections for Democrats. This year, it looks like they're potentially going to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and maybe pass some other legislation. So the backlash against Trump has actually strengthened state-level policies in many ways as well. So, And states really are very important in, in dictating um, what our energy sector looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even here at CSIS, where we sort of have this international purview, we're starting to pay a lot of a lot more attention in the last couple of years to how states are really positioning themselves, either in the U.S. energy economy or creating sort of you know regulatory frameworks that work better for them, or just harnessing the resources that they have because you know they're the ones on the ground and they can think about it either in sort of this energy policy perspective or they can think about it under climate but a lot of times it's really just that there are resources and there are jobs and they're going to take advantage of it and that's something i think we'll continue to see thinking about the decade you know the world has shifted in the states that are looking to adopt new policies a decade ago we would have seen rps policies energy efficiency resource standards maybe a range of other initiatives but they would have been very incremental you know they would have been working to get to maybe 5 to 10 to 15% uh, results in whatever their ambition was now the states that are moving are looking at 100% net clean mm-hmm. energy in some cases the economy wide in the state. I mean, this is a real game changer. And even if you're not in one of those states, just because of the bold and aggressive nature of that type of conversation, you know, I think everybody is watching. So I am curious to see what the, the longer term impact of those policy conversations is, because especially when they do get adopted. I mean, so, you know, Ethan mentioned he's from Virginia. I live in Maryland. So uh, Republican governor, Governor Hogan, you know, announced one of these 100 percent cl- net clean energy uh, programs. But nobody knows really how we're going to get there which is also a kind of different, maybe maybe they would have said, you know, we don't know how we're going to make our 15% RPS when they initiated the policy. But that is not a, a long runway is what we're talking about right now in terms of the amount of time for planning as well as the level of ambition. So I'm curious to see, you know, how um, that will have a broader impact perhaps than some of the policies that moved forward a decade ago. Yeah, these were, I mean, the 100% goals are really ambitious. There's no question about it. On the other hand, I remember 10 years ago and everyone was like, 20% by 2020. That was like often the headline that we saw a lot of states and people are, oh, it's too crazy. You're going to blow up the grid. They can't handle it. And it's like, in some cases, they've blown right past that. They right. beat those targets, you know, a couple of years ago. So, you know, there's, it's amazing what you can do if you, you know, put your mind to it. But I, but I agree, 100% is going to be a lot harder. Of course. But it's impressive to see that that ambition is there where yeah. it wasn't 10 years ago. And thinking about that, so we have some states that are being very ambitious, but the federal government has not been, especially in the climate area. So we've pulled out of Paris. We're re-looking at a bunch of our targets. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about how you see that impacting perhaps, you know, for your organization, for where we're going to be in the next 10 years? Is that impacting some of the states as well and what they're going to be likely to do? Well, from the BCSE side, you know, one of the first things the organization did when it was founded in 1992 was send a business energy executive delegation to the Rio Earth Summit. So we've been involved in the international climate change process since that time. 
And we think it does matter. I mean, both for companies that are, you know, operate in a global marketplace, but even for, you know, domestic utilities that participate. This is important to their customers, to their ratepayers, and there is, this is a global environmental issue. And the U.S., you know, has so much to offer there. I mean, I, just looking at our scientific and modeling uh, capabilities, what we offer to other countries, the capacity building and the support that the U.S. can provide from a governmental or private sector perspective is just you know not not really replaceable. So we are hopeful um, that the U.S. will continue to be involved. We would like them to remain in Paris, but we're hopeful they'll still be involved because they're a party to the Framework Convention on Climate Change. We're just going to have to see how that unfolds. But we're there and we're very committed. It also, just as Ethan said, in terms of the you know election results here at the state and local level, it's sent a, a wave to states that are active on this issue to come to the international uh, and context and, and tell their story and show their support to foreign governments. And I don't think it would happen in the same way if it weren't for, you know, kind of a void of leadership uh, for the Paris Agreement from the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, well, I agree with all that. I, uh, just a couple of quick stats. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, over the course of the decade, you know, the U.S. did cut its uh, total greenhouse emissions economy-wide by 4%. The more important benchmark is probably 2005, because that's what the Paris goals were set against. And if you look against that, we're actually down 12% versus 2005. Um, but the Obama administration goal was to hit 26 to 28% by the middle of this decade, by 2025. And that looks pretty unlikely to me, because then you'd really have to double you'd have to basically cut another 12% in the next five or six years. And yeah, we're going to definitely continue to reduce emissions from the power sector, at least for a while, as coal continues to come offline. Um, but the, the the bigger challenge is really coming into focus, as I said earlier, is the transportation sector. And um, and actually, that's an area where states can have also have an impact. And we've seen this through the California um, efforts um, in terms of their fairly stringent tailpipe standards. Mm -hmm. um, but this is exactly where, you know, uh, where we see the conflict between the states and the federal government, because there's a, a major fight now between California, and I think it's, I think it's a dozen, maybe it's more states that support their um, automobile efficiency standards and, and the federal government. And that is, I would argue, is sort of titanic. It's going to be epic in terms of determining whether or not the U.S. can continue on decarbonizing. But frankly, even if we have the CAFE standards of the Obama administration implemented, it would still be tough to get to those original Paris goals. All of that said, one last thing I would, would add is that like, as far as the industry is concerned and the people who are often my clients and the people out there who are building stuff and financing stuff, they're just getting on with it. They're not sitting around saying, oh, my gosh, what's what's going to happen with Paris? And, you know, we, we were going to do this project, but then Trump said we weren't going to do Paris. Nobody, I mean, almost nobody I can think of has made a major investment decision based on the Trump administration's position on the Paris Climate Accord. I mean, people just, that's not, the, the factors that dictate activity are much closer to the ground than something like that. Right. That goes back to the policy stability and consistency that really matters probably more if you're making an investment. Right. Whether the production tax credit is on or off is a much bigger deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so major changes in the last decade. Was there anything else that sort of surprised you guys when you sort of take the chance to look back a little bit? You know, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, we have been writing this report for eight years. And so these trends have been like we've been seeing them for a while mm -hmm. now. Um, so I think there's nothing too 
sort of shocking. It, maybe in some ways what was shocking about 2019 was that like nothing actually particularly weird happened. Uh, I mean, in other words, like each one of these years, the last eight years, we've seen these overall macro trends, but often there's something kind of unusual that happens that kind of slightly knocks things off course. Like it turns out one year we actually didn't become more energy productive or the amount of renewables doesn't actually end up being that much or actually emissions goes up. Um, and there's been these kind of weird anomalies. But actually 2019, the weird thing was how incredibly non-unusual it was. It was all the trends basically were encapsulated in one year. And that certainly made my life easier as I had to write the executive <laughs> summary of this thing. Well, yeah. okay, I'll pick one thing. So last year, this is more like a year on year. Last year on corporate procurement of renewable energy, even though you can't like the build doesn't happen in the year of the commitment that mm -hmm. a company makes. But if you looked at the amount of corporate procurements that were signed in 2018 and then put right next to it, you know, what the growth in the sector was, you, they basically was half. So corporate procurements were representing about half the demand for renewable energy as a benchmark. And so I was curious to see if we could, if that would hold up, because I thought that was a really amazing mm -hmm. finding. And actually, we had a record year this year in corporate procurements, and this, Ethan can fill in the actual detail. But all right, so I'm going to ask him. So did we did we exceed that? Or yeah, I mean, it was another like almost doubling, like 13 gigawatts worth or 13,000 megawatts worth of contracts signed last year um, of wind and solar uh, power purchase agreements. So yeah, we shattered the record, uh, and I would totally agree with that. I mean, it, it, it is a very good point about what's been surprising is that if you look at who's kind of leading a lot of the clean energy pledges and efforts, mm -hmm. yes, the states are mandating it, but we have over 200 companies that have promised that they're going to have 100% of their operations powered by clean energy. And some of these are some very big companies. These aren't little tiny companies. So I think the leadership that we've seen from the uh, from, from many in the corporate sector has been impressive. Certainly not everybody, to be clear. Um, and um, and one point I'll make, which is just for me, is, is, is that I'm always struck by what feels like a separation between what businesses are actually doing um, and the commitments and the, the fact that many of them seem to get that climate's important and it's also important in terms of attracting and retaining talent to their company to prioritize these things. And then the things that I hear in Washington from some of the organizations that supposedly represent their interests. And I am talking about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce specifically, who seems to not quite get it yet that many companies in corporate America are moving quickly on these issues. So uh, that's, that's, that's where I feel like there's still a disconnect. And hopefully that'll change because that'll influence policy, which will make life easier for these corporations to achieve their goals. Right. Well, and it's, uh, I think it's important to have that conversation in Washington to remind policymakers that, you know, there, there are industry leads. And going back to our conversation, there are states that are leading and that all should just be working its way up a little bit. So my last question, which uh, I don't know if there's anything we haven't covered, but uh, one of the things is just like going forward, is there anything you're going to be adding to the fact book? Anything we should, any sneak peeks for 2020? Well, we added a lot of new stuff this year, actually. Some of the areas, I'll just tick through a few that I'm particularly interested. You know, we had some new data on microgrids. We had some new data on um, new technologies like hydrogen. Uh, renewable natural gas. We had some new data on kind of digitalization trends. And so for me personally, I think those are some of the areas I want to watch. I totally agree with Ethan, though, on transportation. We've got to watch that closely, but more importantly, we've got to act. And I, I am curious to see how my uh, industry members are going to get more involved in that. A number of them are already very involved, either in natural gas or electric vehicles or fuel cell 
vehicles, but we need to see the same kind of corporate leadership. If we're not going to have the policies, something has to kickstart uh, the deployment in a more significant way. And we obviously have a range of policies, obviously the fuel economy standards, but also tax policy is not certain going forward. And if we do need to have some incentives from the federal level, and if we don't, you know, what's going to happen at the state and regional level? How can they, you know, be that backstop? I mean, the, the, and, and Lisa, and you asked about this a while ago, which is just that, I mean, we've got over a million electric vehicles on the roads in the United States. We had basically zero a decade ago. And, um, you know, there are definitely things like state emission standards and, the, and hopefully the federal corporate average fuel economy standards. But actually, when we look around the world at all the markets that have seen, you know, explos- explosive electric vehicle uh, growth, it's actually been pretty basic. It's like when there's a subsidy that goes directly into the consumer's pocket, you see a market. And that's, that's a lot of what's driven the adoption of EVs in the United States. And so, of course, then the question is, well, maybe that's not the right way to do it or whatever. I will just say this, that we're not at a point yet where EVs are cost competitive in terms of being in terms of totally penciling out for most consumers um, without some kind of subsidy of some sort. And so there is a pretty good case to be made that if you want to continue to achieve scale and drive down cost, that has to continue to happen in a fairly direct fashion for electric vehicles um, to continue to scale. And the U.S. market, it should be noted for EVs, didn't see explosive growth last year compared to 2018. It was okay. Um, uh, we are, you know, thankfully home to the world's biggest electric vehicle maker, which is Tesla, a company which is now successfully, you know, um, operating in other markets around the world. Um, and there does seem to be an interesting amount of, um, and you know this too, I think at CSIS, because the, com- the work that you guys are doing with the Department of Energy, that they recognize that uh, they want the U.S. to be a home for battery manufacturing mm-hmm. technologies and, and, uh, and a hub for all of that. I worry a little bit that they're late to the party on this in the sense that there's a lot of manufacturing already underway or being built in China and other places around the world. But there is increasingly a recognition around that. So anyway, long story short is transportation. Hopefully we can continue to talk and think more about that because that's going to be an area of great competitiveness. It's an area where the U.S. has an enormous opportunity and we could miss out big time if we don't don't focus on it in the short run. Well, and thanks for the – small plug for CSIS because we are doing some some thinking over the next year and a couple of series on innovation. Um, so transportation is going to be one that we'll get to later in the year. Um, well, Lisa, Ethan, thanks so much. That was a great discussion. Thanks so much again for putting out the Factbook. It's a great resource. Um, and maybe we'll have to have you on next year to come talk about what else you've seen in the last year. I would love that. Thank you so much. Great. There will be more facts. <laughs> we look forward to more facts. <laughs> Thanks to Lisa and Ethan for joining us today. There's a link to this year's Sustainable Energy Factbook in our bio. And as always, thanks for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts.